Yes. I did. I am regret, regrettably, I am lacking in any form of uh, recreational substance. Oh, oh, you're missing out. So I don't know if I'm in the right headspace to receive and perceive this information, if I'm being quite frank. That's, well, we're about to go on a journey, the two of us then. A trip, would you say? A trip. We are about to go on, yeah, quite a trip together. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this, Mama. This is We Did the Reading, a homopoma podcast where we're smart about dumb and dumb about smart. I'm Clementine, that's Pia, and we are two kids lost in club land discussing the queer media that made us like this. And today, we are discussing Disco Bloodbath by James St. James, which was chosen by me, Clementine. Later published as Party Monster. Yes. Actually, um, interesting fact, uh, the like the copies that are called Disco Bloodbath are now like really rare and they're worth like hundreds of dollars because I can they see went out that of print we were really quickly. I can <laughs> see that we were doing the exact same uh, sort of rabbit holes of research because I also came across that and sort of put a mental note that one of my life goals is to acquire an I know. original copy. One of, I, one of my life goals go came to, like, give you an original copy. That feels like such a, like, world-class present. My, I had a <laughs> professor once who gave me a signed copy of Trash Trio, which is a collection of three John Waters scripts. Oh. Oh. Speaking of Bibles and things that are our Bible. Yeah. Also... For better or worse, Disco Bloodbath is very fundamental to like us as human beings absolutely very, and from very different perspectives actually and uh as our listeners all six of you may not know every new year's eve my tradition is to watch the movie showgirls which is my favorite film my joke that i repeat every time is that it's my new year's eve tradition because if i didn't have it scheduled annually i would not i would be watching it right now because i love <laughs> it that much and Maggie had never seen the old ball and chain, if you will, had never seen the movie Party Monster. And part of our prep for this episode was to watch it. And uh, I realized it is this whole story is sort of the only thing I can think of that can compare to Showgirls that could could be in like a double feature, if you if you will. Yeah, it is equally gay and lurid and like dramatic, Horrid. bizarre, like truly, yeah, truly like grotesque. But this at the intersection, real. this one's at the real. intersection of art and anti-art. Yeah, these two stories lay, and it, it, and this one to me is distinct because it happened. It involves people who, some of whom are still alive, and some of whom have passed on, and in that way, there is kind of a responsibility to to reckon with what our um, interest in those stories does, you know? Like, what our interest in those stories um, manifests in real life, what it means to kind of um, glamorize those things, because this this thing ended in blood, is my point. Not to get so, so bummer so fast, but it, it, that to me is the interesting, like, crux of this particular uh, text if you will. It's perfectly titled also as Disco Bloodbath. Exactly. I think changing the title to Party Monster later, uh, which is also quite a good title, but Disco Bloodbath really shows the two equal sides of the story. James uh, St. James, it turned out, is a very good writer when he's not on K. Well, we'll get into that later. I think we should probably acknowledge that we are obviously inspired to record this podcast because Michael Alleg, one of the key figures, mm-hmm. um, passed away from an overdose on either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. Um, the story centers around him and a big old murder that he committed. And so it seems fitting um, in his memory, for better or worse, to of any time to re-examine what this means. Right. To pause and re-examine this text. I think particularly because we're kind of creating this, uh, 
very, very long conversation about like American queer culture and what, and in particular, like our love of queer culture. And this actually like a little behind the scenes info was the first episode we recorded um, was about this text. And then uh, the audio was garbage. So we had to throw it away. Um, But this was our first impulse. This was the first thing that we were like, we should really talk about because it is so queer and it was so like I said, formative to both of us, uh, yes, you extremely. in college and for me in high school. And it really like informed our aesthetics and our choices for a long time. And yes, that's, I think about it all the time. Yeah. And that's, uh, pretty dark because it's actually, I mean, both of our journeys and revisiting it, I think uh, speaking, I guess, just for myself, a lot of my reaction to revisiting it at 29 was like, I I thought these people were so grown up and I thought they were so cool and so glamorous and now I am five years older than them and I know that most of them are dead, you know? Like, I, I to a certain degree, like, also, like, went through, like, a wild phase in my early 20s and I know that there's a body count and it's just so, quite literally sobering to read this book, uh, when you come out on the other side of it, you know? Yeah. Actually though. No, I, I agree. But, um, but as her manager, I Mm -hmm. see another side of this, which is that some people were able to come out of this and that, I guess another point is that this kind of lifestyle will always be, um, for and by the youth and it kind of has to be because it's not sustainable yeah no and some people you know some people make that bargain with their lives you know some people do decide like this is the thing that brings me joy and I do want to go out in this way and this young and and who am I to judge that like what is being a person you know but I guess at the same time our choices aren't that neutral, right? Like when I was thinking about this and I'm not trying to, to, to make um, any kind of moral judgment about drug use. I am a fan of drug use and I'm not trying to make any kind of moral judgment about um, uh, party culture or um, any of these people. I'm, I'm more just saying that it does feel relevant to me that, but with, and we'll get into the plot, but it does feel relevant to me that the person who died was an immigrant of color and the people who succeeded were white people with the exception of RuPaul. Um, These choices aren't neutral and that we have to kind of reconcile with that part of it as well. The conversation I'm interested in having is how can we have the art and the joy and the euphoria without the violence? And is that possible? Is that too naive a question? I don't know. I just, no, it's a, it's a great question. I had someone, I had a really like off topic, wild conversation with someone who had some pretty like opposed political beliefs for me. And one of the things we, in this long conversation that was actually quite, um, I don't know the word, polite and constructive. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say for most people reaching across like a wild, a wide gap of the political spectrum, but we were talking about the military and they were like, yeah, in the military, you can't, there's no, they were positing that in the military at war, you can't worry about um interpersonal differences because you're in survival mode and I was like yes but can we get the bond without the trauma is like the question yeah and I think that's like the same question posed here like wow this is such a so so iconic such an iconic group of people doing amazing things that like honestly I think inform I think that the way Michael Alec goes about coming up with ideas is not unlike the way that I often with ideas. I see a lot of similarities in the way that we 
subvert and pervert things. I was listening to an interview on Geraldo where he was talking about um, a Lorena Bobbitt themed party where they were going to eat hot dogs. And I was like, that is like such a great idea. I love, like, I love that. Um, That, you know, I feel that way about true crime. Like I'm very interested in true crime and bringing an element of humor to it. What does it mean about me that I want to talk here about a super violent crime that happened and also laugh at the same time? Probably means that I need a clonopin prescription. But other than that, like I see myself in all of these people, but like, can we get these results without a handful of them dying and developing uh, horrible PTSD and addictions? Right. And the rest of us just being trauma ridden, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, and that's a very inherently queer question, right? Cause also queerness is historically underground if you wanted to fuck someone who like you weren't allowed to fuck or look away, you weren't allowed to look, you do that in a bar, you know? And so queer culture is inherently tied to uh, substance use, to nightlife. And in so many ways that has bred beautiful culture, um, incredible music. It has bred uh, the entire genre that is drag queens. You know what I mean? It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing, but it also means that, to be queer and to be a part of queer culture is to have to have a conversation about substance use and um, trauma because those are um, kind of inescapable parts of our culture, you know? So definitely this whole story and certainly the outcome um, of those who are involved is how does one integrate the trauma in a healthy way? Yeah. Which uh, it seems like at least in the end of, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, um, but it seems like in the end of Michael Alex's life, he was not able to um, to integrate the trauma in a healthy way as he passed away from an overdose. Um, I, yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, to be clear, I, our, our compassion for, for Michael Alec, for Freeze, for James St. James, does not, is not... Um, in any way intended to focus them over the person that they murdered. I, I, it feels really important to me to say that because it really bothers me that all of this attention, all of this celebrity was given to Michael Alec because he murdered this 24 year old man. It, it really upsets me. And, and I don't know, I have trouble morally reconcil- reconciling that. I, I have trouble um, I'm- glamorizing it at all now well first of all yes the i think one of the best things that's come out of the this contemporary wave of true crime enthusiasm has been centering stories on um victims especially those labeled as the less dead meaning black people people of color in general trans people sex workers gay people Basically, like the anti Jean Benet Ramsey, it, there's a problem with the um, the culture of true crime because inherently the victim is less psychologically interesting for the most part because they didn't do a murder. You know, yeah. it's fascinating to hear about for most of us for whom murder is unfathomable or any other sort of violent crime. It's fascinating to puzzle apart what might lead someone to that state. So it's interesting to learn about about that person. And I don't actually think there's anything wrong about that, as long as we always keep in mind that there is a victim and say their names and find ways to center the story about them. Find find ways in true crime um, stories today that name the victim specifically and go into some details about their life and honor them, I think is really important. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that you're right. And that's the correct way to think about it, or at least a way that I find useful to think about it. I just always, I guess I just wanted to make sure for, for both of us and for the six people listening that we, 
acknowledge and center the fact that like a, a human being died and that that's real and like that that's not a thing worth demeaning because the people that did it were glamorous, you know? And I know that you and I both agree on that. I just wanted to say out loud that we agreed on it, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this is an audio medium. True. So it's important when we verbalize things. Um, all right. Got this. Sounds good. Be okay. good. You Thanks. and your fucky hand. It's so rough, dude. I'm really excited. For the record, I'd like, I would like uh, to just state for the record on audio that Clementine von Reich's known writer for a living, half broken their fingy uh, on their dominant hand. And so I know this is a, this is, you know, this is an audio medium, but just I want everyone to sort of bring. Uh, manifest that vision in your mind of just known writer Clementine Conradic's bruised at the phalange. I am a, I'm a writer and also like my role in my relationship is I'm the person who does most of the cooking and cleaning. Uh, so I spend all of my day working with my hands. I also have severe ADHD and like can't function by like typing things out and remembering them that way. I have to write them down. So, um, so we're on a journey for the next two weeks while my hand is just severely bandaged because yeah, I like fucked up two fingers and my wrist, uh, by slipping. So, all right. So what about the book disco bloodbath, a fabulous, but true tale of murder in Clubland, AKA party monster. Mm-hmm. is homo and what is pomo well it's homo because everyone in it is gay or trans or <laughs> everyone's gender is fucked up everyone's sexuality is fucked up everyone's here to get fucked up and have a good time i i mean like we said like i loved this book i read this book when i was probably 15, 16. I can't for the life of me remember. Too young. I can't for the life of me remember how I got my hands on it, but I did. (laughs) My terrible gay little hands. Faggoty little phalanges. My faggoty little hands just saw like Macaulay Culkin's pretty face on a book cover and was like, gotta have it. Uh, But (laughs) I mean, of course this was a, a world I gravitated towards. I wanted nothing more than to be Um, to be somewhere glamorous, to feel beautiful and glamorous and interesting, um, despite the fact that I was in no way conventionally so, and I was queer. And to, like, escape into that world, of course that was a thing I wanted to do. Okay, I'm going to stop you and say that you're not not conventionally attractive. Because, and I'll say it for this reason, is because if you say that, then you're saying I have bad taste. (laughs) How would you know? I only sleep with extremely attractive people. Aw, that's sweet and also fair. All your other, it's yeah. about I mean, me. your wife is incredibly beautiful. So, I yeah. Who am I to to in any way criticize your taste? But yeah. I, so basically, you're calling my wife ugly by saying. Oh my god, that. I hate you so much. I'm not even talking about. I'm not even talking about the me that you dated though, because you dated me when I was like 17, 18. I read this book, like, a couple years before that, which is, like, a whole other different person. You're, like, a different person every year of your teenage years, you know? Like, me at 15 was, like, a mess. Like, a pink-haired, lonely, weird mess with, like, an eating disorder and no friends. Okay, so we know why it's homo, because everyone in it is a homo. Mm -hmm. It's just, like, the queerest group of... A queer ragtag bunch. Absolutely. Why is it Pomo? It's Pomo because uh, James A. James, who wrote it, is the uh, best friend slash rival of uh, Michael Alec, the main character, the person who committed the murder that is the central plot of this story. Um, James A. James is the author, and he is also um, an exceptionally good writer with a... uh, pretty heavy ketamine addiction and also just a general addiction to uh 
drugs with like a, a capital D and a trademark at the end. Yeah. And, <laughs> uh, and so the text is very, is structured in a very nonlinear way. The text kind of mimics um, a lot of these hallucinogens and uh, general kind of uppers and downers that these people are on. Uh, it also has a lot of very like postmodern references. It is in its structure and references extremely postmodern, as well as the um, the culture it is documenting is uh, very postmodern in its aesthetic. Right? It's very Lee Bowery. It's very like yeah, absolutely. We are the artists during the day, and then at night we go out and create art ourselves by being, or we sleep during the day and inspire artists at night. I actually um, have a little test for you on the in the realm of Pomo. <sighs> I'm okay. I can't wait to fail. A small quiz, if okay. you will. Okay, I'm gonna list two events. I want you to tell me which one is uh, something that happened during the Club Kid era, like at a party, and which one is performance art. Okay. Man peeing into a cup and then drinking it in entirety for an audience or a woman removing a scroll of poetry from her vagina and reading it to an audience. Which one's the which one happened in the club, which one happened in the gallery? The pee thing happened in the club, the poetry thing happened in the gallery. You are correct. You win. Uh, you you gotta save the piss team. play for after dark. <laughs> <laughs> that second piece is uh, interior scroll performed by Carolee Sherman, I believe was her name. Just to Good give for credit for where it's due. I have yeah. one more. Okay. Okay. A champagne enema. Where the champagne? No, was I, I, I got you. Yeah, enemaed and then uh, excreted for an audience. <laughs> you didn't need to or, explain it. The both both parts though. It, there's both are performed. Sure. Okay. Sure. Or um, a man lying underneath a ramp, masturbating furiously and mumbling fantasies about the audience above him champagne enema's got to be the club and the the other thing's got to be art god damn it you got you're very good at this <laughs> it doesn't help that both are uh, really related to the genital area well there was also um, like, well actually they all are now that i think about it they were all very genital but the context clues were like yeah, of course the champagne's going to be a thing in the nightclub. Like, of course you're going to incorporate champagne into your nightclub act. You don't necessarily incorporate that in a gallery. They're both art, though. It's both kind of genital I don't know that there's art. that one performance artist who um, drank a bunch of colored milk and then vomited it back out. That was performance art. That's true. Very I often. know, but There's it's like, I want to see that in the club. Like, I totally want to see it in the club. Like it's just like, pieces. that's when I want it. That's when I want it, you know? I want it. I want the joy of I can't art. see a man masturbate under the floorboard sober. This is what I mean. But no, truly, really, though, the joy of art in a club is the because of the context, the art inherently knows it's stupid. It knows it's for people who mm. are fucked up. It knows it's just for people that are trying to have fun. And it's acknowledged that the people who are up there are trying to have fun and are trying to just make some money and get your attention and have fun. And that is the appropriate context for performance art. I don't want to walk into a gallery like sipping wine and be like, oh, yes, a woman seriously masturbating as she reads a poem. Like, I will watch it and just like cheer as there is like, music and I'm on ecstasy just like it, it's a matter of context you know and I think Abs performance I art is very very well served by the nightclub by nightlife and um wait until I tell you about acting I I feel the same way about acting like there's yeah it, nothing so funnier than like an actor wearing glasses trying to talk about <laughs> like it's just uh so good 
perhaps you could enlighten me with a little bit of history about these club kids I keep hearing so much about. Basically begins when Warhol dies, right? So Warhol oversees the kind of nightclub, the nightlife of New York City over the 80s. And Warhol dies and there is suddenly a massive gap in the culture. And there is this question of like, what is going to happen to the nightclub scene of New York City? Enter the club kids who are these children, these people who are, you know, 15 to 22, who are famous for being fabulous, who wear these uh, fantastic costumes, who throw these fantastic parties, and who basically um, sleep all day and uh, enjoy drugs and parties all night and um, seem it's to a live hedonistic this, lifestyle. Yeah, seem to live this kind of hedonistic childhood fantasy that appeals to a lot of people, and they kind of become niche celebrities for that for a couple years and James St. James was there for the tail end of the Warhol era and kind of oversaw this transition he meets Michael Alec when he is fresh off the bus and this is him documenting his rise and fall over the course of maybe like 89 to 92 89 uh, to 97 more accurately. Yeah. It, so it's... The it's, murder took place in 96. In 96, and um, and it wasn't kind of discovered, and, and Michael Alec wasn't really... It was being documented, and the culture was waning as Giuliani took office, and also this culture was getting seedier and seedier and seedier, and it really wanes and kind of ends in 97, maybe 98. But... By 99, New York is um, Sex and the City, New York, which we've talked about before. And it is uh, kind of just a capitalist haven. And there are whole plot lines about this this culture disappearing. Yeah, this book is kind of telling a few different stories. It's telling mm-hmm. the story of... It, it states very explicitly that it is not like a historical text of the club scene of this time. But it offers uh, like a ketamine-filtered snapshot of it, as yes. it were, as it, uh, if you will. Um, it chronicles specifically Michael Alex's rise and fall, and then it also uh, something I thought that was really interesting, which is James St. James in interviews has said that he really didn't want, <laughs> he always wanted to be a writer. And he, of course, in classic James and James, Michael Alec dynamic, really didn't want his big break to be writing about Michael Alec. So he made the book as much about himself as possible. So there's also kind of this like very like direct to camera um, interaction with the narrator of James and James and the reader where he's giving his tips and tricks, making references speaking directly to you, giving you his life lessons about how you should stand so that you get top billing in a photograph, et cetera. He's pretty self-aware. Yeah, he's not afraid to show you. He, in fact, goes out of his way to kind of show you how um, repulsive uh, drug addiction makes him, like the ways that he uses people or the ways that he lies to people or steals from people. He doesn't... um, omit from the text I think that's like that whole attitude of being just very upfront about something Mm -hmm. and then sort of putting the onus on the other person of what they're going to do about it is an attitude from all of these people that like I said I definitely do for better or worse like Mm -hmm. for example there's a scene where they they all snuggle up and do all of Angel's drugs um, all of his cocaine and ketamine and Angel comes in and everyone's sort of flustered about how they're going to explain this and Michael Alec just sort of announces, Angel, we did all your drugs and we need more. And right. then that, that kind of is like, now it's kind of Angel's problem. 
And I think that 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 attitude, I think, is also kind of can be like very queer, not always in a negative light about like stealing someone's drugs, but being like walking into a room and being like, yeah, I'm a faggot. What about it? Like is definitely something I've done as self-preservation at least three times today. (laughs) No, that's very true. I appreciate that perspective. I think that that is another way that, um, yeah, the, the whole culture it's another window into like why the culture seems so glamorous and so appealing to so many. It's also a coping mechanism. It's very much a coping mechanism. It's, it's uh, so funny how much of dialectical behavioral therapy is, is just kind of woven into queer culture (laughs) and to the way we talk to each other. (laughs) It's so dude uh, on the, we did the reading Instagram account. I don't know how much time you spend on there, but whenever I'm scrolling over there, we get a lot of ads for, like dbt apps so i don't know who we followed but the algorithm has figured us out and they said y'all need to get it together they said maybe you should talk to someone um pia can you lead us through kind of the story of the rise and fall of michael alec boy can i ever some might say it's basically the only thing i can do so this, I, as we said, this story is very much centered around James St. James. He's the author, and he is making it very clear that he's the author. But it's about Michael Alleg, who, if nothing else, is a fascinating character. Sort of had, like, a classic childhood um, for this kind of story where he was, like, gay in a small town in Indiana, I think. And then, as soon as he could, yeeted himself to the big city. Um, the big apple, as we call it here, uh, <laughs> to be fabulous. He arrives on the scene and introduces himself to James, and James is kind of like not wanting to have anything to do with him. Mm-hmm. Michael is a fan of James, which will be an important sort of dynamic that will later be flipped. Um, and this is during that like Warhol, Warholian party era. Then Warhol dies. And so in that gap, Michael takes that opportunity to start his own new wave of clubbing and party promotion. Um, And, you know, from one party to another, how he sets himself up at the Limelight, which is a club, not a fun club, in a church, which is like classic, run by Peter Gation, who is a man with an eye patch, because the story is not real like this sounds like every 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 sentence i uh every sentence that needs to be said to explain the story makes it sound less real uh at the same time uh then suddenly michael is kind of the center of attention and james is kind of on the other a little bit on the other side of that and they are developed this uh, classic frenemy relationship where they're the best of friends and it seems like they connect on this really deep gay level of understanding each other but also kind of hate each other and are always picking at one another and so michael is now sort of running the show and he's getting he's creating um people in his own image um, giving people, finding people, sort of plucking people out of the void and naming them genitalia and then letting them run free for a few years until they either burn out from drugs or go back home. Um, well, I, and then I still follow genitalia on Instagram. She's doing great. She grew up in New York. She still lives in New York. She now goes by her legal name, which is Jenny Dembrow. And she like works in some kind of like social work related field and is just kind of like a normal person and like a parent. Um, she posted something when Michael Alec died that was like, thank you to everyone that reached out. But the, the Michael that I love died the night that he murdered Angel. I really appreciated her perspective. And I love, I love following her. I love knowing that she ended up kind of just like a queer, weird 40 something adult who's like doing okay. Yeah. That's, it's like, it's proof that maybe it can work out. That's like a plus one in the column that it can one. work Absolutely. out. There's a lot of plus ones in the other column, but at least we have her. I think we get like half a plus for James. I don't know. Yeah. He's doing great, but I think 
I was actually listening to an interview with him and he says that he, I think he's still an addict at heart and would love to be doing drugs, but he just doesn't have the time, but right. it's a mark of success that he is not doing drugs instead of because he has to go to work this morning because that's a distinction uh, many people with a drug addiction can't make. True. Speaking of drug addiction, also in the scene we're seeing in this book, we're seeing sort of the rise of drugs, different kinds of drugs, a lot of ketamine, which seems to be our our hero James and James's favorite, um, which he lovingly describes the effects of at the beginning of mm-hmm. like in the in the author's introduction, uh, and then uh, you know ecstasy, cocaine, all the way up to heroin, and these drugs really like starting to take over people's lives. Michaels um, and Freeze, who is part of the scene and. Michael's roommate and a drug dealer, um, how drug use and drug dealing is becoming ingrained in the scene. Um, and then, but at the same time, how these local celebrities that are sort of these club kids famous for doing nothing are also getting national attention on places like Geraldo and are bringing more people in, which is where we get Angel, who mm-hmm. is, in, he starts out as a fan of Michael, sort of in the same way Michael was a fan of James and is known for wearing these wings, these really like fabulous wings that everyone seems to dunk on, but I think are cool. Yeah, um, everyone calls them ratty, which I, or at least James consistently calls them ratty. I think that that might be maybe a very specific choice by by our narrator, but he sounds really, yeah, he sounds pretty fabulous, honestly. And yeah, I mean, any time that I've alleged, allegedly picked up, there's been nary a costume in sight. Nary a wing, I agree. Yeah, I think that'd be a real incentive. I, uh, yeah, no, I agree. The vibe has been downright casual every time I've ever picked up drugs. Uncomfortably so, <laughs> yeah, allegedly. I agree. Allegedly. Allegedly. I uh, <laughs> work, work from home. Work a whole from new home level attire. of the, the work from home vibes. <laughs> the book also does a great job... Um, this is not so much in the other media surrounding this story, but it there's a macrocosm of the club scenes rise and fall, and then a microcosm of these specific um, cares who are important to remember are actual people, even though they uh, have names like Jenny Talia and might wear an eye patch. And so we get two specific stories: Mavis, who comes to New York and um, like uh, some nice Midwest lesbian who comes to New York and is basically like eaten up by the scene and addiction. And then Freeze, who was a haberdasher and seems to be like a cool, like literary, like uh, well-read dude um, who was super into having like maintaining a fantastic mustache and wearing like platform leather boots um, and like cool pants, very cool pants, very cool pants. It's noted. He devolves into like a pretty um, downtrodden uh, heroin addict, uh, cocaine, like crack user and dealer as well which becomes relevant when we get to the the big murder part of the story. Do you want to talk about Angel? Do you want to speaking of speaking of the Moida? Yes, absolutely. This era builds and builds for years. Um Michael Alec, like you said, began sober and his drug use increased um slowly, uh but Surely, and uh, by the time this murder was committed, it's pretty clear that no one involved had any real connection to reality anymore. And so uh, Angel, whose real name was Andre Melendez, and who was um, a 24-year-old immigrant from Colombia who lived in the outer boroughs, came to Michael Alex's apartment 
to uh, collect a debt. Michael Alec owed him a lot of money. He'd been his prime drug dealer for months. And uh, some kind of altercation occurred. Um, according to Michael Alec's testimony and to the testimony of Freeze Riggs, who was the other person present, um, Angel and Michael got in a fight. Angel got the upper hand. Michael yelled at Freeze to help him, and Freeze grabbed a hammer and attacked Angel. Um, he hit Angel with a hammer, and then Michael smothered Angel, and then they poured Drano into his throat and duct taped his mouth shut. Um, and they think that is what killed him. It's, it's a really horrible and gruesome murder that was committed by people who were so fucked up they didn't understand what they were doing. They then kept his body in their bathtub for days, um, cut it up, put it into different boxes, and threw it into the Hudson River. Um, they weren't where it floated. Where it floated, and um, different parts of the body actually ended up washing onto shore, but they washed onto shore on the New Jersey side and the New York side. The different parts of the body ended up at different precincts, and that was enough kind of bureaucratic confusion that this murder wasn't solved. Um, yeah, of Angel, course. The police didn't seem to care. Um, a queer this, person, a drug dealer, an immigrant, yeah. and of color, and and presumably poor as well. Exactly. His, um, there's a lot of footage recordings of his brother really uh, explaining how he went putting up flyers and asking people in the scene, like, have you seen Angel? And right. just getting a cold shoulder. Uh, that was the thing that... that that stuck with me as well was the fact that like he was clearly very loved, you know, he was very, very loved by his brother and by his, um, his father, by his extended family. Like he clearly, there were people looking for him. There were people who, who cared very much and the police simply didn't care. There was just, despite the fact that like his body parts had washed up onto shore, like no one was following the leads for this murder. It, this, the book itself opens with uh, Michael Alec confessing this murder to James St. James and telling him beat by beat exactly what happened that night and what they did with the body. Michael Alec told many people this story. He hosted parties themed around this story and this murder. He he coped with the guilt of the um, of what he had done by, like you said, by making it everyone else's problem, by like telling everyone and it was so gruesome that a lot of people didn't believe him until the evidence slowly started mounting um a person we haven't talked about yet is michael musto who was a club kid but who was also um more notably um a columnist at the village voice and so he's kind of the journalistic window we have um so i think not to get too sidetracked, but Michael Musto is a really interesting um, dynamic in this scene because it speaks to the larger club machine and the business and aspect, and that this was for 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 the all of these people involved, all these main characters. This was a party, but it also was a business. So Michael Alec was running the party, but. It was also his business. And then also to get all the club kids to come, he would have to get a drug dealer to provide them with some, like an eight ball of cocaine instead right. of drink tickets. Like drink tickets are out, cats in, as it were. But going back to the story, Michael Alec basically is joking, not joking, uh, in the way that he is often wont to do, telling pretty much everybody that he killed Angel. Rumors are circulating that his head is in a box, in a freezer, or that his hands are like, someone has them in their fridge in like Brooklyn. Like the scene all kind of collectively knows that something has happened. And then Michael is probably responsible and everyone is kind of. So 
these tensions keep mounting, um, it becomes more and more public knowledge. Eventually, Michael Musto writes this column called A Murder in Clubland that reports this item that Michael Alec and Freeze Riggs are rumored to have killed Andre Melendez. And uh, at this point, the, the investigation does start to pick up. The police start wanting to look into the murder, Michael Alec, uh, because they want to bust these, uh, these clubs for drugs and for distribution. And they offer Michael a softer sentence if he cooperates. Really, really uh, fitting to the where that to the to it's it's very indicative of how American justice takes place. That the concern is to shut down a club for um, involvement with drugs and using the murder of a boy as leverage in that larger plan. Yeah. I mean, there's an argument to be made that the drugs definitely weren't helping the situation, right? Uh, at least in this case. But when they finally decide to care about Angel's death, he's he's not even the main story of the law. They're sort of more interested in shutting down Peter Gation. Right. The book ends with Michael being caught with James St. James turning 30 and with um, really a eulogy to this entire era. Wouldn't you say? I think that's a really good way of putting it. Yes. Um, There's a lot of conflicting accounts and I don't think we'll ever know what happened because of time trauma and a lot of drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, But we, we get in the text Freeze's confession and James's James St. James's commentary on it. And then, like you said, a eulogy to the man Michael Alec was before the murder to the scene, which effectively is over once he's convicted. No one really wants to be associated with this anymore. Right. Um, and also to Angel, finally, um, because pretty consistently it is asserted that no one really liked Angel in the scene. Right. I it seems to be important that they include that. I don't know why, but it seems to be pretty consistently mentioned by everyone involved um, and like upheld. Yeah. But at, at we do finally, not enough, but get from James St. James a, a statement to God bless Angel and that we should mourn him and that, and a little bit of refocusing onto the victim of the crime. That is the end of the the real plot of this text. And I guess the next question is, how did this text influence you? So do you want me to go first? Yes. So I didn't actually read it until we read it um, for the first ever behind the scenes recording of we did the reading i did the reading um i hadn't read the book i had only seen the movie which i discovered in college um which is iconic in its own right and that was instantly like a cult classic to me in the same way that watching showgirls was was just obsessed with like not only the story because it has everything i'm interested in which is true crime crazy people um queer culture being fabulous, but also the way in which it's told in the film, which I think is reflected in this, in the text, obviously like it's not there. There's actually a, at the beginning of the book, Mr. St. James (laughs) uh, is explaining ketamine in detail. Um, And he describes the high, which I have never used. I have no experience with. I've heard it described as like the indica of cocaine, which is a <laughs> phrase that makes me want to just lay down and go to bed. <laughs> um, so he says, it's hard to explain, but it bends your thoughts into a nonlinear looping sort of format. It pretzels your thoughts into Mobius strips. 
You see everything inside out and curling all around itself. There's more information, but there's more description, but I think that that sort of infinite loop uh, is a big part of this story. There's an infinite loop of these rises and falls the, of specific people of different scenes. And I think those are all told and those are all reflected in the way the text is written. So I was really struck by just how uh, postmodern the actual book is. It's not just giving you like a beat by beat breakdown and going and like, it doesn't have, if you're, if you're, if you're interested in true crime is strictly like you want to know all the details about something and really get into a case. Like there's some, there's details about this case that we're just never going to know because everyone was too high, but it does give you that looping Mobius strip sense of what it was like to be in this scene did that like increase your interest in drugs or did it make you gravitate towards um, the story? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It makes <laughs> me want to like watching the movie. I was like, I want to do some drugs, yo. Like <laughs> let's just, I want, it makes me want to go to a club and do a bunch of drugs and wear something ridiculous, which is funny because I don't, like going to clubs actually i'm horrible at them i have no idea what to do i don't like dancing uh i think i would be pretty un, i don't i don't think i would do very well in this scene um <laughs> but it makes me want to just it makes me it makes me yearn it's like a nostalgia for something that i never had is the feeling that i get when i engage with this story hmm. more the, my takeaway is unfortunately less of this murder part the murder part is interesting to me psychologically, um, the way that Michael Alec copes and just the way his whole character profile is like really bizarre. Mm. We see a lot of that, him just like peeing on people and like yeah. asserting himself that his way. Need like to like socially punish anyone who he like perceives wrongs him. Yeah, that that's really interesting to me. I don't really want to, that doesn't influence me other than to like, watch all the interviews of Michael Alec that I could find because I am interested in what is up with his brain or what was up with his brain. Yeah. But yeah, engaging with this makes me yearn for this time. I like, and we missed it and it'll never come back. And like, even if it was here, I don't think I'd be very bad at it, but like, man, do I want to cook up some special K right now? <laughs> I can't stand you. <laughs> I apologize. No, it's good. It's very good. You're very good. Um, I think if I had found this in, like earlier, I don't know. It's kind of like, I don't know. I know for me, like I found anime right at the sweet spot. I think if I had found anime in high school, I would be a radically different and cringier person. <laughs> so I think what, being introduced to this in college um it's probably better for me. I have a little bit less self-control than you do when it comes to these things. I think you took the scene that you saw through uh, Rose tinted glasses and, and enacted it in the best possible way for yourself. And I don't know if I had read this too young, I don't know if, <laughs> if we'd be having this conversation right now. Yeah. I, I took the, the, the scenic route in deciding that this life was not for me. I had to, <laughs> I had to dabble to, 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 to confirm, you know, I, I had to be. You have to confirm. I'm a tactile learner and I had to kind of yes. I had to explore. Exactly. <laughs> I had to, I had to. I, I had to make sure that this wasn't what I wanted. It turns out like I do want to live past 27 and I have. So that's great. But um, at 21, I did need to confirm by making. You're like, let me just do the research. Yeah. This is scientific. <laughs> it really was. Journalistic, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see your data. <laughs> I have a lot of very sad notebooks to offer. Um, well, well, that doesn't sound fun at all. It's not. Um, well, what do you think it means to, to glamorize 
a scene like this or what do you think it what do you think our responsibilities are as people who who love this era who were inspired by this era like how do we how do we talk about it um ethically morally I don't know but it's a question that I should probably find the answer to because what I I my other another big interest as I've mentioned several times is true crime which is like very much uh, about talking about the worst thing that could ever happen to someone. For me, listening to podcasts about true crime and getting really deep into Wikipedia pages about serial killers is kind of like a coping mechanism for me. I think it's like an anxiety thing. I think I got a lot of bees buzzing around in my head. I take the approach of to look at something directly in its face, which is ironically uh, exactly what the club kids are doing. And also, unfortunately, how Michael Alleg coped with the murder, you know, by just saying, yeah, like, oh yeah, we killed Angel, ha ha, brushing it off. Like that is also my coping mechanism. Hopefully I'm doing it in a little bit. It's better to look at it than to not. Yeah. It's it's better to look at this story and recognize that uh, a boy was murdered and a bunch of other people died of overdoses than to not look at it at all. I agree. I mean, I think if something's compelling, it's compelling. And I guess the most we can do is acknowledge the human cost of those things and give the victims of it the personhood that we give to the... um, the people whom we've granted celebrity you know like it's a matter of it's a matter of not hiding or minimizing the crime ever true i think my final statement is there's a get the bell out ready to ring it because i'm going to mention my mother lana del rey um she there's an interview around the time of ultraviolence where she was getting a lot of Black for saying something regarding uh, being like depressed. And I think she even said at the time she was suicidal. Um, and especially the album Ultraviolence is very much about being not okay to TM. Mm-hmm. And Frances Bean Cobain, Kurt Cobain's daughter, um, and also Courtney Love's daughter. <laughs> which is a crazy thing to think about actually um, tweeted, like made, tweeted a statement that Lana Del Rey was glamorizing suicide. Um, and I think Lana responded something along the lines of, I'm not glamorizing suicide. I'm suicidal and I'm glamorous. <laughs> and that is in general, how I feel about this situation. Like not glamorizing drug addiction and murder and the narcissist narcissistic and sociopathic um way that michael alec and many other people in this scene uh acted but it is all those things and it is glamorous and it doesn't serve anyone to ignore the glamour part hopefully there's ways to take inspiration from the glamour and bring it into other projects yeah Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's, that circles back to and kind of answers the first question that we asked, right? Which is how do we, or begins to answer, like, how do we, how do we keep the glamour? How do we keep the joy? How do we keep the euphoria without the trauma and the violence? And at least part of it has to be about just keeping shit in the open, you know? I'm pretty disappointed we didn't answer that question. I think I think I felt like we were gonna have the answer to that. We were gonna nail. I it. thought that in this uh, yeah uh, this hour and a half we'd do that and then we'd knock out the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. <laughs> we just have the answers. <laughs> we'll have to do it the next episode. <laughs> well, so that brings me to what is? Oh, fuck, we have to. I have to think of my rating. I would rate it uh, four out of four limelights. I would rate it nine bags of heroin ingested 
along with tea and crumpets. Very glamorous. My additional reading is, first of all, a video you can find on YouTube, which is Michael Alec, NYC Club Kids on Geraldo, April 17th, 1990, which is a 45-minute episode of, is it Geraldo or Geraldo? I can't. Geraldo, I think. Geraldo. I can't be bothered to remember that. Um, But it is uh, an interview with the, like, club kid celebrities, including Michael Alec, Michael Musto, uh, RuPaul in 1990, trying out a lot of her, what will become her signature RuPaul catchphrases. I uh, just watched this exciting. one today. It's pretty thrilling. I just watched this. It's RuPaul very good. Is already RuPaul. <laughs> and, RuPaul's um, RuPaul. She gets every, she gets like everybody say love out there. Like it's amazing how well in whenever they ask a club kid a question, someone meanders, but RuPaul already has like RuPaul level media training. Like she RuPaul from the future vicious. came and went to the past and told her how to be RuPaul. And she's able to whip out those catchphrases and whip an, the audience into a frenzy. It's fantastic. This is something like, we will, we have to continue to talk about on this podcast, which is the borderline psychopathic focus of RuPaul. I, anyways, I strongly recommend this, um, this uh, video, which actually gets kind of um, translated into a scene in um, something for our next episode. So I really recommend it. It's very, very worth watching. The other thing I want to recommend is um, a poetry book about true crime that very much focuses on like uh, victimhood and on, and on the, the stories of women or the general kind of cultural fear and fascination with murder, um, Life of the Party by Olivia Gatwood, which um, if you've read my poetry, you've probably read Olivia's, but if you haven't read this one yet, I really recommend it. It's incredibly good. Well, I've never read your poetry, so maybe I'll start with her. I recommend this one. Yeah, she's she's pretty great, <laughs> dude. I have read your poetry, but actually it's only been it's only been the one book because we were only started speaking by the time I was able to get my grubby little mitts on the one. I know. I'm here. There's I'm sure there's copies of all of them here. So I promise I'll complete the canon. <laughs> there might not um, be, actually. I don't actually I think the only I don't keep copies of my own book in my house. I don't think there are. I found one the other day. Don't <laughs> I? Oh, no. I can bring I can bring it out right now. Please don't. Um, I'm gonna recommend Ernie Glam, who is an original club kid who also was uh Claire the Chicken sometimes. Mm. Is really exciting to know if uh, if you're not in the as in the weeds about this as we are. Claire the Chicken was a uh, club kid regular who was just a big anthropomorphic chicken suit. Uh, pretty great. Claire the Chicken's definitely like that's what I would be in this scene is I'd be a Claire the Chicken. But Ernie Glam um, would be that role sometimes. Uh, he is one another person who seems to have a pretty normal and great life. Um, I has a good job and a husband, um, but took Michael in sort of after he was released from prison a few years ago, they hosted a show called the pew together, um, which was on YouTube and the show sort of tapered off. Uh, as I learned from the video I'm about to recommend due to Michael's increased uh, substance abuse. And Ernie Glam released a statement on the Pew YouTube channel, sort of about Michael's death. And I think it's a really interesting perspective. Obviously, everyone involved, I think, has really complicated feelings about this, right? Like, it's it's hard to know if out, if out of prison, Michael fully repented for his actions. He... His, uh, at least his trauma and coping mechanisms seem to be reverting to the kind of nastiness that, like the aforementioned uh, social humiliation and peeing and stuff seems to be like where he goes to, whether, you know, that's probably born from trauma. Uh, 
certainly Angel is still dead. So forgiveness is not for any of us to grant, but it is interesting to hear someone that was really close to him um, up until pretty much the end sort of give a statement. James St. James, I did a lot of research, has not yet made a statement. Not that he has to, but I'm sure he has a lot of complicated feelings about this too. Yeah. I, yeah. I wouldn't know what to say. Um, wow. And then my uh, final recommendation is actually what we're going to be talking about next week, which is the 2003 film adaptation of this book, Party Monster. It is starring Macaulay Culkin and Seth Green. I have so much to say about it. It is, uh, like I said earlier, one of my favorite movies. Definitely, like, top five. It's, like, Showgirls, Party Monster, and, like, I don't know. We'll pick three Star Wars to round it out. And that's I could watch that for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, so I'm going to be really excited to talk about how we take a non-linear, drug-injected, true-crime book written by a queer uh, maniac I say that to James lovingly into a feature film absolutely albeit a box office flop but a film nonetheless a very poorly reviewed film that we both happen to adore yes that I've seen like a dozen times same well I can't wait to talk to you about that I until next time, in the words well, of I Sappho. Have, I, have a sus- you, I was just going to say, I have a suspicion that you might not have to wait that long to talk to Ooh. me about it. Because I think we're going to talk about it actually right now. That's right, motherfuckers. Time isn't real. <laughs> we record when we want to. <laughs> not when we have to. It's also when we have to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In the words of Sappho, someone will remember us even in another time. And in the words of our fallen patron saint, Kanye West, everything is exactly the same. Bye. Am I the Michael? No. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs>